Dracula. I am Dracula. And I bid you welcome, Mr. Hart, to my heart. Come Our first award goes to the vampires for most blood drained in a single evening. The strength of the vampire is that people will not believe in him. vampire lovers the sun is going down and you know what that means it's time for me to record another episode of my podcast the beautiful dead as always i am your host alina nazari you can find me on all the social media things but the easiest way really is to go to lenanazari.com you can find a link to my email which is lena at lenanazari.com if you haven't already Join my fanged family because they are the first to get all the updates. They find out all the things. Um, Big, big, big news. Since the last time I spoke to you. So, you know, I said, as always, this is Lena Nazari, but not as always. For the first time on this podcast, I am now Dr. Lena Nazari. That's right. Since the last time I recorded, I did defend my doctoral work. I was successful and I now have a doctorate in nursing practice. Don't worry, guys, I'm not going to change. I'm still the same old Lena Nazari. But another exciting thing is the sequel is out. So the sequel to Bite Shift, which is called Code Blood, is now available on Amazon. Quite ironically, It uh, was published on Friday the 13th. Now, we didn't intend for that to happen. We actually hit a little bit of a snafu, and it was uh, published a couple days late. But you know what? It's worth the wait because I had to fix something. It was worth the wait to get it out and get it out right to you guys. So very, very, very exciting. So if you're not already planning on it, I would love for you to come see me this summer. I have a few appearances happening. If you go to leanandazari.com, You'll get to see where I'm appearing, but the first one will be uh, June 17th through the 19th at Sci-Fi Valley in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Come celebrate with me, get the sequel, get some autographs, get some pictures, give me a hug, tell me congrats, call me Doc, I don't care. I'm just so excited to see you guys. I am so excited for the, no pun intended, next chapter in my life. Um, I will admit on one of my previous episodes, I very dramatically told you guys that I was going through something very difficult and it's true. It was very true. Um, And I promise at the end of this episode, I will let you know what it is. But for now, uh, people have been asking and let's get back to what we always do, which is talking about vampires. I'm super excited for this one. I went back, reread the first four books. I have not read them in a long time. So it was really fun to go back. It was exactly what I needed. Um, They're very quick reads. So I was able to read all four books in the last week. And um, I just loved being reunited with these characters that I know so well, but I've completely forgotten their origin story because it's been so long. Um, Without further ado, let's talk about it. 
Today we're talking about the world of Anita Blake, which is the vampires of a Laurel K. Hamilton's universe that she has created. Um, Anita Blake is a, a vast series of novels about Anita, who is a vampire hunter. And this, I will talk about this at the end of this episode, but this, I mean, Laurel, if she ever listened to this episode, it would be such an honor because she is definitely, definitely um, a, been a part of my life for a very long time. So for anybody who doesn't know, Laurel K. Hamilton has multiple series, but the Anita Blake series is her vampire series. She has a fairy series and I believe an angel series, um, but we are going to be talking about her vampires. The series started in 1993. Oh, I forgot to say for anybody who's new to the podcast, massive spoiler alert. Okay, guys, I ruin everything. So I just assume either one you're familiar with the material and you're listening to this to hear my take on it. Or two, you just want to hear me talk about vampires and you're never actually yourself going to go watch or read whatever I'm talking about. So um, I do ruin things. I tell you who hooks up with who, who falls in love with who, who learns to hate who, who kills who, how they die. I'm going to tell you all that stuff. So huge spoiler alert before we get started. All right, going back. This series started in 1993, so it's been around for quite some time. The first book is called Guilty Pleasures, and it continues on to this day. It has a staggering 32 books and novellas just in this universe of Anita Blake. So you can imagine the amount of information that has been given to readers about vampires in all of these pages. So as much as I would love to just like ramble on and on and on about these 32 books, I'm not going to do that. It would be way too unfocused. It would be way too much for you. So for the purpose of this episode, we're just going to talk about the first four books. And the first four books are called Guilty Pleasures, The Laughing Corpse, Circus of the Damned, and Lunatic Cafe. I'm going to try very hard to not mention things from later books because I have read them all. So, But be patient with me because they all kind of blend together. Um, I am going to have to pull a little bit of info from later books to try and explain some things to you, but um, I really am just focusing on the first four books. So anybody listening who's a Laurel fan, who doesn't understand why I don't talk about XYZ, it's because I'm not going to get into those later books. I'm just going to talk about the basics here. Now, because of her necromancy, um, this is a natural magic that Anita was born with. Anita Blake is a full-time animator. So her job, her full-time job, is to raise zombies for a fee. And if you're asking yourself, why would you raise zombies? I'm going to tell you why. So in this universe, um, Supernatural is just accepted as part of the universe. And one of the things you can do is go pay for someone to animate a corpse. And that could be maybe because you want to know where grandpa hid his cash before he died, or there is um, will disputes. You know, somebody died before they wrote their will, or somebody is contesting the will. You can actually raise a zombie up, ask them these questions with lawyers present, and then raise them back down. Sometimes it's maybe because you didn't have a chance to say goodbye. It was a sudden death. You want to be able to say goodbye. For whatever reason, you can go to Animators, Inc., you can hire Anita or one of her co-workers to raise zombies. And she got into this because she had this natural ability to raise the dead. And so she kind of is, wants to hone it and uh, use it for uh, profit. 
in this world, like I said, supernatural creatures are just an everyday thing. And vampires are out of the coffin. There's even a political movement trying to give them voting rights and all of this stuff. And we've heard this before, right? True blood. But this, you have to remember, this precedes true blood. Um, it is set in St. Louis, and St. Louis isn't, it, they have their own preternatural police squad to handle specifically supernatural crimes. And Anita is a professional consultant for the squad. Um, because of her knowledge, she has a degree in preternatural biology, which let me tell you, as someone who holds a, a doctorate in science, man, do I wish preternatural biology was a thing, but sadly it is not so anita has her i believe it's her bachelor's or master's in preternatural biology and so she works as a preternatural um professional consultant for this squad she's also their vampire expert she helps them solve these preternatural crimes and she's one of the very few licensed vampire slayers in the country she has vampire killing kits in the back of her car along with her zombie raising kits i'm, I'm assuming her trunk is very full um, and it's a pretty good side gig, and it's she's so good at it that the vampires actually call her the executioner. So prior to vampires getting laws, she would just go out and hunt and kill them like any other vampire hunter or slayer. However, now, because there are laws, they, there has to be a warrant. So the judge has to issue a warrant for this vampire to be executed, and then she goes and she is the executioner. At the start of the very first novel, which is Guilty Pleasures, Anita has 14 vampire kills under her belt, which they allude that that is a, a, a huge number of vampires. And that so she is like best of the best. The vampires kind of whisper behind closed doors about the executioner. She's kind of like their boogeyman. And a lot of times when the vampires first meet her, they go, you're the executioner because she's this little tiny thing. Um, along with vampires and zombies in this world, you also see witches, voodoo practitioners, were animals of all types, not just wolves. Um, and they all, uh, like at one point, um, one of the werewolves talks about he got lycanthropy from a bad vaccine, which let me tell you, here in 2022, very apropos. She had no idea. But so there's lots of different ways you can become aware. We even meet a Lamia. Uh, we meet a swear up. Uh, he's not called a were swan, but he is a swan, and that was because of a witch's curse. Uh, Richard, who is a very major character in these first four books, he is a werewolf, and he dates Anita, and he is a rival for her love. But I digress. This is a vampire podcast, so I'm going to get refocused and let's get to the vamps. Jean Claude. <laughs> He is master vampire. He owns several vampire businesses. He is introduced to us early in the very first book. He owns a strip club called Guilty Pleasures. And um, at the end of the first novel, he overcomes this evil master of the city to become the new master of St. Louis. Uh, he sets his sights directly on Anita, much to her dismay. And unfortunately, she does everything she can to resist him, um, but it's not so easy. Because of her necromancy, some of the vampire powers don't work on her, so she is able to resist some of Jean-Claude's powers a little easier than most, but this only, unfortunately, increases his interest in her. So Jean-Claude, major vampire player in these books. Some other vampires we meet are Willie McCoy. This is somebody that uh, is a new vampire that Anita knew 
prior to his turning and now knows him as a vampire. And he's trying to maintain this delicate balance of being a vampire, but also helping her. We meet other master vampires like Malcolm, who runs the Church of Eternal Life, Mr. Oliver, who is from Cro-Magnon time, uh, Nicolaos, who was a master vampire, um, turned when she was actually a child. So we meet a bunch of little vampires, but Jean-Claude is by far our major vamp in the first four novels. Like I said, to anybody who knows this series, please, I know you're trying to figure out why I haven't mentioned other vampires. It's because we don't meet them in the first four novels, so bear with me. So let's get to it. Let's break down this universe, this vampire universe. What is their relationship to humans? Well, like I said, in this world, vampires are out of the coffin and they are proud. Um, there are humans that are pro-vampire and there are humans who aren't. Some of the groups are called like um, Humans Against Vampires or Humans First, and they're working very hard to have vampires' rights taken away, um, to have them go back in time and just be hunted and killed. But then on the flip side, there's also a church called the Church of Eternal Life where you can join and be turned. So there's kind of the two different sides of this coin now that vampires are out and proud. Like I said, there is a police squad just for preternatural crimes. There's licensed executioners. Um, judges hear cases and determine whether or not this vampire needs a warrant. Vampires are very well protected. You can't just go out and slay a vampire. That's murder. Um, you can't slay somebody just because they rose as a vampire. That's murder. But on the flip side, they also have to follow laws. So they are not allowed to just go take a victim. It has to be somebody who is willing. Um, and so there's like their relationship with humans is a little more um, complex than we may have seen in other things. There's even a vampire district in St. Louis. It's an area of the city where there's a lot of vampire businesses. So humans will go down to the vampire district to kind of like catch a glimpse of the vampires. It's sort of like a safe danger. They kind of walk, walk around giggling, waiting for the vampires to come out. Jean-Claude, who's a very skilled businessman, really takes advantage of this. He has his um, strip club and then he also has a... Um, comedy club and so he, and then he has the circus of the damned which is a circus that highlights supernatural creatures so he's very um smart in the way that he works all of this to his advantage and then we even see a a, a bar that is owned downtown called dead daves and that is owned by a man who used to be a cop became a vampire and was kicked out of the squad. And there's, it's interesting, we see this in True Blood too, where there's a lot of talk of prejudice. So they handle those issues of prejudice and racism and sexism, um, but they use vampires as an example. So like I said, Laurel did this first. So to go back and reread it, um, you know, the first time I read it was the late 90s. To reread it now, I'm just like, wow, she was way ahead of her time. Again, I'm getting distracted. Um, another relationship they have with humans, you can have human servants in this. So we saw that in Dracula, but these human servants are not sort of the mindless creature that we saw in Renfield. They're very, very aware, but the way it works is the human servants are created over the course of four marks. And these are sort of, um, 
supernatural marks. So it's a magic that happens. The first two are sheer magic. It's not till the third one that blood is involved. And once all the four marks are given to the human by the vampire, they're still human, but they can live for as long as their master does. And they have these supernatural healing powers like the vampire does. They can communicate with their master telepathically and in dreams. Their master can feed through them. There is um, a moment... I, I, I can't, I'm losing track now, but I want to say it's over the course of like a week where Jean-Claude is locked in a coffin and he is able to feed through Anita as he's in the coffin. So he should be wasting away, but instead he's feeding through her eating. And that is because she has gotten two marks. So he is able to do that through her. What are their appearance? So much like many of the vampires we've seen and so many other things, they look primarily human except for being very pale um, now anita can tell right away who is vampire and who is not but that of course is because of her necromancy but um, other humans they can't always tell right away um, not until they see the fang flashed or they see an obvious uh, display of vampiric power like I said, fangs. So these vampires do, in fact, have two sharp canines, just the way I like it. And Anita mentions in her narration, so these fangs are not retractable. However, she does mention that only the new ones really flash fang, that the old ones are able to keep their fangs hidden unless they want you to see them. So they have learned how to speak and manipulate their smile in a way that you don't see the fang unless they want you to. Blood. Blood is a necessity for these vampires. They don't eat food or drink anything. They use blood to survive. However, there are some vampires that can feed in other ways. So they can, like I said, they can feed through their human servant, or there are even vampires that can feed through sex and sensuality, and we will get to that later. Religious items. We're going back to the classic vampire trope in this universe. In this world, religious items can repulse a vampire. They glow in the presence of a vampire and will actually burn the vampire's flesh if the religious item touches them. There's a great moment where um, Anita goes into Guilty Pleasures and there's a, a religious item check girl. So instead of checking your coat, you check your crucifix. So that was really interesting. Um, the only caveat in this universe is you have to have faith for the religious item to work. Now, we have seen this before. We've talked about it. We saw it in um, Fright Night. We saw it in uh, Salem's Lot. So she even says, like, there's nothing more pathetic than watching somebody wave a cross in front of a vampire if they have no faith because it doesn't work. Um, sleep in coffins. Coffins are a thing in this universe. The vampires sleep in coffins, but it doesn't stop them from having beds, which we find out. Uh, despite having human laws ruling that a killing of a vampire is murder, many of the vampires do protect their resting place since they are very vulnerable when they sleep, especially the masters. So Jean-Claude, master of the city, he sleeps under the circus of the damned, but he protects that resting place because he's vulnerable when he sleeps and coffins are used as a punishment in this universe as well. So some of the vampires get punished by being locked in a coffin with crosses resting on top for days, weeks, months. Um, 
and that is punishments that are handed down to them by their masters when vampires don't follow orders so it's sort of a way to keep them in check so um they will lay there and they will waste away but they will not die how are they made so this is a little so in the in the original novels in these original four novels anita explains that you have you get bitten over the course of three nights or three bites and then you die uh, as a result of a vampire bite you come back three nights later as a vampire but we see a bunch of different um uh we see a bunch of different vampires in this world so so in the third book she has to go to the morgue to stake a vampire who rose after being killed by multiple vampires which shouldn't be able to happen. However, in this case, it does. And because he dies as the result of multiple vampires, he actually is what is called an animalistic vampire. So when he raises, he's, he's pure rage. He, all he wants to do is feed. He rips people apart. Uh, in this world, the vampires have rights, like I said. So there's these special morgues where vampire victims are taken to. And so when they rise, there's a vampire counselor there who's helping you like acclimate to this new world. But in this case of the animalistic vampire, he just ripped that vampire counselor apart. So it didn't matter. Um, and in this world, you can actually make a living will to stipulate that you want staked and destroyed if you die as a vampire victim. So you would rather die than rise as a vampire, because if you don't have a living will stating that, then the um, default is to allow you to rise and accept you as a vampire citizen, and then you adjust to this new life. And then, like I said, there's also the Church of Eternal Life where you can go join and I, there's some form of counseling. And then if you, yes, that's what you want, then you get turned into a vampire. So um, to listen to her explain it, I want to say in the second book, uh, she says you, you get fed on three times by the same vampire. You die as a result of that vampire. You rise three nights later. And there's a whole thing about how the, it takes three nights for the soul to leave. And so they don't raise zombies until they've been dead for three nights. And so she kind of hints at like, does that mean vampires don't have souls? But I'm heading way down a, a line of discussion we don't need to talk to for the, for the purpose of this podcast. But that is how they're made in this universe in the first four books. So let's talk about powers. The powers are definitely a little more complicated in this world. Um, like I said, I'm going to try really hard not to mention anything from future books, but in order to try and explain it to you guys in a way that is understandable, I, I'm going to have to mention a couple things. So in this world, all the vampires are strong, they are fast, and they can mesmerize you. So in this universe, Laurel calls it rolling your mind. We've also heard it as mesmerization, and we've heard it as glamoring, but it's the same type of thing. They can roll your mind and take control of you and then get you to do whatever they want. Then on top of those powers, vampires have unique powers given to them. So you don't always know if you're standing in front of a vampire, what power that vampire will have. So we see things like um, flight, you know, which we're used to. Um, but then we see some things that are, as far as I know, very unique to Laurel's vampires. I haven't seen them in other worlds. So for example, in her world, uh, the powers are handed down sort of through bloodlines. So specific bloodlines will have these specific unique powers. For example, there is a, a bloodline of vampires that can rot. So they will actually 
use their magic or their powers to rot in front of you. So they're very beautiful and then they just start to rot like zombies and then they can bring themselves back together. That is a specific bloodline. There's also vampires and those vampires, they feed off the fear that you have watching them rot. So that's what they feed off of. Um, and in one scene, I'm digressing, but it's so interesting. In one scene, these two vampires seduce a character just to rot on top of him. It's like, that's very screwed up. That's a whole new level of screwed up. Um, but like I said, there's other ones like um, Jean-Claude. His bloodline are very beautiful vampires, and they have what's called the ardeur, and they can feed off of your sexuality and sensuality. So they seduce you, they raise lust in you, and then they feed off of that lust. So that is a power that is specific to his bloodline. And master vampires can have animals that they can call. That's a special power. So in the few books I'm talking about, there's one that controls rats. Uh, there's one that controls snakes and Jean-Claude controls wolves. And the interesting thing is they can control the were version of that animal as well. So for example, Jean-Claude can call wolves, but he can also control werewolves. And this is how we first meet Richard. He is um, with other werewolves at the Circus of the Damned at the behest of Jean-Claude. So Jean-Claude can actually order Richard to do things because wolves are his animal to control. And in this universe, the older the vampire, the stronger the power. In later books, the powers get much more complex, like eventually Richard and um, Jean-Claude and Anita form what's called a triumvirate, and they essentially, al it allows them to share each other's power and then makes their own power greater. So she um, will develop the ardeur, um, and it will be able to feed through lust. Um, and, uh, and, and in this world, all of the supernatural creatures, whether they're necromancers or were animals or vampires all have their own sort of magic. So that's very interesting and very specific to this universe. Um, as with most vampires, they are essentially immortal as long as they don't step into the sun or get themselves, you know, get their heart or their head destroyed, they keep going. So we meet Mr. Oliver he is uh, a million years old. He is from caveman times. But the interesting thing in this universe is not all vampires will become masters. So just because you could be a thousand years old and still not be a master vampire. So it has to be something that's kind of already inside of you. What are the rules in this universe? Um, so here's one that is it's something that we see time and time again in this universe the vampires do have to be invited into your home and you can uninvite them so we do see that happen like i said they're out of the coffin so they don't really have to hide their existence like in other worlds we see the number one rule is don't let humans know of our existence we don't see that in this universe however they have uh, two sets of rules, essentially. So they have the law, the human law that tells them, you know, you do not feed on somebody who's unwilling, blah, 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 blah. But then they also have their own rules kind of amongst the vampires outside of our human laws. So they don't really, in the first four books, they don't really talk about rules so much. I mean, obviously there's the ones we're all expecting, which is, you know, do what your master tells you. Um, 
I will tell you, there doesn't seem to be a law about turning human, I mean, children. So like we saw that in uh, Interview with the Vampire, you don't turn children because they are defenseless. But in this universe, we actually meet two child vampires in the first four books. So clearly that's not a law. So not too much about vampire rules in that first four novels, but over time you do kind of informally get to hear different rules amongst the vampires. There's a lot of like political maneuvering and rules when you enter the city, you have to make yourself known to the master and on and on and on. Um, but we don't read too much about that in the first four novels. How do they die? I already said it, you have to destroy the head and the heart to kill most vampires. The older they are, the harder they are to kill. And of course they can be killed by sunlight, just like any other vampire, well, pretty much any other vampire that we have talked about. Are they good or are they bad? So we're not gonna talk about the animalistic vampires because like I said, they're sort of born, they rise instinct only, that's all they are. They just wanna kill and feed and whatnot. So we're gonna talk about the rest of them. Like so many of the vampires we have covered, there is a healthy mix of good and bad vampires. They seem to sort of fall on a spectrum. Like there's a few of them that are all good. There's a few that are all bad, but most of them fall somewhere in the middle. They make good decisions. They make bad decisions. I mean, you don't write 32 novels without having like a whole bunch of relationship play and people trying to figure things out. So these vampires are very much like humans in the fact that they make uh, bad decisions and they make good decisions. So pretty much like most of the vampires we've talked about. All right, let's talk about tropes I hate, tropes I love. So we're gonna start with the tropes I hate. Um, there's not much about this universe that I hate. I actually find these books you know, going back and rereading them all these years later, I still find them so creative and so interesting and so hard to put down. However, I have talked about this before. I really don't like the whole you have to have faith for the religious item to work thing. Um, it's ch less cheesy in the book. So in the movies, it's really kind of cheesy. That moment where the hero holds up the cross, it doesn't work. He gathers his faith and then he holds it back up and it does. It, it's less cheesy in the book because it's either you have it or you don't. So she makes it very clear. Anita has faith. So crosses work for her, but other people, they don't have faith in the holy item. So it doesn't work. It's not one of my favorite things. So that's it. That's my own personal opinion. Tropes I love. I love when vampires are able to mesmerize. We see it in True Blood. We see it in Vampire Diaries. I love when vampires have the ability to mesmerize. I use it in my own books because I love that ability. I love the idea of a vampire being able to feed and then mesmerize you so that you don't even remember it. I think that's such a good survival mechanism for vampires. Um, I love the idea of them being able to I don't know, take away your inhibitions. I think that that's what makes vampires so attractive is that so many times with this lore, we see the heroine or the hero able, being able to just let go when they're around that vampire because they're so intoxicated that they just stop caring. 
Um, I also love when writers use vampires from all different countries and all different time periods. Laurel K. Hamilton does this so well. She has vampires from, so for example, Jean-Claude is French and he's from the time of courtiers. We meet one from caveman times. We meet one who's like brand new. And I just picture him as like a, a side character from, you know, uh, the Sopranos, <laughs> like I, I picture him being like this, this Jersey boy, brand new vamp. So I just love that idea of like vampires from, we, there's a German one at one point. Like, I just love that idea of vampires from all over the world and all different time periods. And I love when she has them wear the clothing of their time period. And you guys know, I love historical flashbacks. And that's one of the things I love about vampire fiction is you can really pull in all these different historical eras. Um, most of all, I love the idea of vampires being out in public. I saw it in True Blood. We see it in this. I love using vampires as an example of how we, um, and Anita even mentions that at one point, she comes to terms with the fact that she herself might have some um, prejudices, even though she walks around saying, I'm not prejudiced. Well, when she's faced with it, she sees that she does in fact have prejudices and she has to overcome that. And so it's such a great way to deal with these issues, but slap vampires in the forefront than something that might make us a little more uncomfortable. Now, I myself do not use this in my books. In my books, vampires are not out of the coffin, um, and I needed that to happen. It, it, I needed vampires to be a secret for my story to work, but who knows? Maybe in the future, Soren and Reese and Kate will, will get to come out into the public. But for now, I'm not using that, but I do love that idea. All right, let's get in everybody's favorite part, the ratings. Let's rate our vampires, Laurel's vampires. How scary or evil are the vampires of Anita Blake's universe? So I'm giving these vampires a solid six out of 10 stakes to the heart. These vampires don't have to hide in the shadows. So that gives them an advantage because curious humans will come to them willingly. Um, but it also gives them a disadvantage because they have to follow human laws and police officers are there waiting for them to screw up. So it sort of helps and hinders them. They can mesmerize if you're dumb enough to look in their eyes, which Anita's really good about this. She's practiced not looking in their eyes. But if you're dumb enough to walk up and look this vampire in the eye, well, nice knowing you. Because of the Church of Eternal Life, their numbers are growing very fast. And if they decided to turn against us, it's very possible they could take over very quickly. As with most vampires, they are very hard to kill. But unlike most, they're actually protected by laws. So you can't just go out and hunt and slay a vampire because that's illegal. Uh, the masters specifically could wipe out a hell of a lot of humans if they decided to. So. The only reason I didn't give them a full 10 is because many of them have the desire to live among humans. They fall in love. They have reason. They have compassion. And people like Anita and Edward, Edward, we haven't talked about um, Edward. So if the vamps call Anita the executioner, they call Edward death. He's just as deadly to uh, supernatural creatures as Anita. And th those type of people really discourage the vampires from being stupid. Like I said, they're like the boogeymen of the vampire world. So for that reason, they get a 6 out of 10. Stakes to the heart for scariness and evil. 
how sexy or alluring are the vampires of Laurel K. Hamilton's Anita Blake series? You guys all know that Damon Salvatore and Eric Northman are, in my opinion, some of the sexiest vampires on television. Well, Jean-Claude is the sexiest vampire on paper. These vampires are not only sexy, but they draw humans into them. They have that allure um, that makes humans follow them, even though they don't necessarily know why. Even Anita finds it hard to fight the pull that she feels from Jean-Claude. She describes early on that even she recognizes how attractive most vampires are. So the vampires of the Anita Blake universe get an 8.5 out of 10 onks for sexiness and appeal. Of course, there are exceptions. Like I said earlier, there are vampires that rot and vampires that were turned as children. These vampires are going to bring down the sexiness level, but they still seem to have that pull, that allure that most vampires have in this world. They can roll your mind. They can make you crave them. They can make you beg for their bite. The scene of the strippers, the vampire strippers at Guilty Pleasures is a very early introduction of the sensuality of these vampires, but truly it is the tension between Anita and Jean-Claude that really has you gripping your bedsheets while you're reading. And by the time, spoiler alert, that they finally have sex, you are ready to climb a wall from the buildup from the sexual tension that is in this, this Anita Blake universe. So for that, um, the vampires of Anita Blake's world get one of my higher scores, 8.5 out of 10 onks for sexiness and appeal. They're just under the vampires of True Blood and the Vampire Diaries. So what are my thoughts on the Anita Blake universe? I found Laurel K. Hamilton in the late 90s. I was just about to leave high school and go off to college. And this world has been such a big part of my life for such a long time. Going back and rereading these first four novels as an adult um, was like being reintroduced to friends. You know, I, I know now, 20 years later, where these characters are. So to go back and reread it, as somebody who's much older, has been on this earth longer, has had more experiences, was uh, such a different experience for me. And I see now how much in a, of an effect that Laurel K. Hamilton has had on my own writing without me even realizing it. I told you in my last episode that when I created Soren, he was bits and pieces of different things that I find attractive. And, and Jean-Claude, is definitely a major inspiration of Soren. I mean, it's a hundred percent true. Now that I've gone back and reread those beginnings, Soren really, he, Jean-Claude is definitely a big part of Soren. Um, I was reading these books. I was reading about Jean-Claude before I even had my first kiss, long before I even understood the feelings that were coming out of me by reading these novels. And beyond the sensuality, Anita Blake is this tiny, badass. She has the same sarcastic coping and dark humor that I myself have. And over the years, I found myself 
having the same outlook as Anita, which is if you don't like what you see, too bad, because this is who I am. Now, Anita is in her early 20s. I think she's 24 in the very first book. Unfortunately, it took me to my late 30s to stop taking bullshit from people, but rereading these series, I can see that this is why I connected with Anita as well as I did because she was the person I wish that I was long before I even realized I needed to be that person. It's funny, when I was looking for someone to publish Bite Shift, I did send one of my very first query letters to Laurel K. Hamilton's um, publisher. I knew it was a very, very long shot, but, but I knew if they liked her writing style and the world that she was building, that maybe they would like mine too. Now we all know I ended up self-publishing. I got a lot of rejections, but that's how much of an impact these books had on me. On the off, very off chance that Laurel ever listens to this episode, listen, I love you. I never would have found my own voice. I never would have written my books or started this podcast if I hadn't discovered Anita in a library 20 plus years ago. So I say to all of you who are listening to this, you know, you never know the impact that you will have on other people, whether it's just an interaction you have in a restaurant or a piece of creative work that you put out there for my actors. You know, when you, when you get on screen or you get on stage and you play a role and you play a part, you may have moved somebody that day in a way that they truly needed. Um, to my authors, to my artists, to my dancers. You, you just never know how you are impacting people and how what you do today could impact them 20 years from now. So I thank you guys so much for listening to me. It feels so good to be back. I still, I'm still wrapping my head around the whirlwind that is having finished school, being Dr. Nazari, um, finally sort of getting my life back. Um, like I said, I promised you guys, I would tell you what's going on. This episode will not be uploaded until I made the official announcement at work, but I made the very, very difficult decision to resign from the hospital. It was, um, the right decision, but it was very hard. I, I, and it took a very hard set of circumstances for me to really see that it was time for me to move on. So I will be starting um, in the beginning of June, I will be starting a job where I get to work from home. It is Monday through Friday, daylight. I will have my weekends and my evenings. I will be more available for my children. You know, I have one year left with my oldest and three years left with my youngest, and then they're gone. And I don't want to be on call all the time anymore. I don't want to be at the mercy of when the hospital needs me to come in anymore. I don't want to come home after 12 or 16 hour shifts and snap at my kids because it was a bad day. I don't want to be tired anymore. I don't want to continue to not have time for self-care. You know, I want to get back to the gym. I want to go for walks. I want to go for hikes. I want to be outside. I want to enjoy my summer. And you cannot really do that as a leader in the hospital. So it was bittersweet because I love the people I work with and I love, you know, saving lives. But it's time for me to start a new chapter. Um, it is time for me to do more things with my family and for myself and I will have more opportunities as a podcast host and an author. I am going to be doing a panel 
at Sci-Fi Valley on Friday night and Saturday afternoon. I'm doing a 30-minute vampire panel. And, you know, prior to resigning from the hospital, I would have had to tell them I can't do it because I don't know if I'm even going to be able to go to Sci-Fi Valley because if the hospital needs me, then I have to cancel my appearance. Well, I don't have to do that anymore. So I'm already about halfway through the third book. I'll have more time to do that. I'll have more time to do more appearances at conventions, to take my kids on road trips and do all the things that make me like really, really fill my cup. So I am resigning from the hospital and, um, and as hard as it is, it's the right choice. So I've been sort of getting ready for, I've been wrapping up school getting ready for this new transition. I will be announcing it to the hospital very soon. So once you hear this podcast, it will already have been announced. And then I will get to start this, this, this new part of my life, which I'm very excited about. And I'm excited that you guys are a part of it as well. Uh, if you haven't already, go get Code Blood. It's on Amazon. If you haven't read Bite Shift, get Bite Shift too. I promise you won't regret it. Come see me. I'll be in Altoona. I'll be in Toronto. I'll be in Maryland. I'm looking at some other ones. I think I'm going to go to New Orleans in January, which I've, I'm so excited about. So please sign up for my Fanged family so you get to hear all the updates. And I love you guys so much. Thank you for supporting me in this and being a part of this journey. I wish you wicked hugs and bloody kisses. Good evening.